Just so you'll know, and if you haven't figured it out by now, over a course of time, I'm kind of like science fiction movies. My wife and I are different that way. She likes the Hallmark. She'll watch the ones where, you know, there's always there's a love story intertwined with it and everything else, and she'll watch those, and I'll go off to another room, and I'll watch my science fiction movies. So that's just the way I am. I'm just kind of wired that way, I guess it is. And it seems like most of them have something in common. As a boy, I would watch the original Star Trek series. That's how old I am. Can you believe it? As a junior high kid, I would watch the original Star Trek movies. I was a big fan. I loved it as a kid. I remember when they took it off the air. It was the worst thing that could ever happen in life at that time, is to take that off the air. And the thought of traveling through space to different planets and galaxies, it's fun to imagine, even though in reality it is impossible. I mean, people could say, well, tight science and technology will improve. I go, no, 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 no. If you look at space, it's far, far, far too big. The distances between planets is far too extreme. We measure things in light years, and some things are as many as, many as a thousand light years. And the chance of life existing anywhere else other than the Earth is virtually impossible. And we've studied and we looked. We're finding no place else that could handle and accommodate life. The fact that life exists at all is remarkable. That can only be explained, to, in my belief, in the existence of an intelligent and powerful God who had the means to write the code for our DNA molecules that's more sophisticated than my library in terms of the information involved. Plain and simple, life should not be. But we can imagine, and that's what science fiction allows us to do. It allows us to imagine and dream of these foreign beings, these aliens, and all this kind of stuff. And the likelihood of that being, I don't, I'm not real optimistic about, but it's fun to imagine. Now, when Star Trek first came out, it was long before computers and smartphones were common in households. The idea of, uh, to a, of talking to a computer and it talking back was something only a person like Gene Roddenberry could envision. I mean, because I thought, wow, this is something else, to a computer talking to you. And yet in the movie, the computer was a key character that provided important information. They would re resource it quite often. And now, of course, we all have access to resources, both on our phones and devices like Google Home, that you can ask any question. You can just say, hey, Google, yeah, what do you want? I'm paraphrasing liberally here. When was the War of 1812? It's 1813. Oh, okay, well, thank you for giving me that information. It wasn't, I mean, I'm just throwing it out. It's a possibility. And then it talks to you. I, I noticed that I'd be in a conversation with somebody. It, it would just automatically start talking to you, which is weird to me. But that's what they do. That's my point is, that's what happens. And we all have that now. We can all talk to our computers. That was big news in Star Trek days. Other movies have taken off of this thing. The movie Space Odyssey, if you ever remember, they had a computer named How. Remember Hal, who almost spoke with a very soft, mellow voice, but Hal went rogue. But his programming got out of control and began to sabotage the humans to whom it was supposed to serve. And the phenomenon of taking, talking and reasoning computers has come to be known as artificial intelligence, AI. Dozens of movies are created around this theme. Movies like Bicentennial Man or iRobot or A1 or Terminator, they all sit around this idea that computers and robots can someday simulate human intelligence. The nice thing, of course, about a robot or a computer is that it can be programmed to do exactly what you want. In every story of a wayward robot, the problem is faulty programming or a glitch or the software that was written wrong, something they didn't foresee. And if you want to change the robot's behavior, you simply go and you reprogram the software. And some movies have even taken a step further and have been written to suggest a software, a robot can be made to have free will. Then there's even a test to determine what that's supposed to be so it can act independently of its programming. That would make it almost human. 
Now that sets the stage for today's sermon. And in a sense, I've given away the punchline. It's a why question that I want to answer this morning. If we ask what distinguishes us from robots, one obvious answer is that we are not mere programs. We are free agents who can act independently within certain limits. When I say certain limits, I can't choose to go underwater without breathing apparatus and still live. We're given great resources and opportunities, and yet there are boundaries that we must not cross, and we know, or at least we should know, what those boundaries are. To cross them comes at a high cost. This morning, I want us to look at what sets us apart from robots, because by understanding that distinction, we're better equipped to answer today's question, which is, why did God put the forbidden tree in the garden? And we will learn that it's because we are not robots, that we're creating the image of God who is freely, able to freely love and serve him. So we're going to expand on that question a little bit. The question again being, why did God put the tree in the garden? Now the question often assumes that if God did not put the tree in the garden, there would have been no temptation, no potential to disobey God, no sin against him. We'd still be in the garden. There'd be no pain, no hardship, no conflict, no death. Everything would be wonderful the way it was supposed to be and the way God intended it to be. So why in the world did he put the tree in there? And to answer that question, I think we have to step back. We have to look at the bigger picture of what God is trying to do in his creation in the first place. First of all, let's observe that God created the world to be very good. Now, I won't look at the specific passage, but you all know that God created this. It was good. This was good. This, this was good. Then he created a woman. He said it was very good. That one trips me up sometimes, but nonetheless, it's God's assessment. So he's good there. No, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. But let's look at a passage that introduces the tree in this perfect, ideal environment. Starting at verse 8 of Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gibbon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And then it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Wow. First of all, before we expand on this a little bit, let's make several observations, broader observations. God had the right to create any kind of world he wanted. When asking the question, why did God create the world the way this is today? The answer is, we don't know and we may never know. We can only make educated guesses based on the information he's given us in the Bible. But what we do know is this. He did not consult us. He did not create 10 men in advance to form a focus group and interview them to get input on what kind of world he should create for them. And say, okay, let's just give your opinions. What kind of world should we have? Because I guarantee you it would be a very different world. And as creator, God has every right to create whatever world he wanted. He does not need our permission or our input. If you want to be mad at God for this world, then go right ahead. But it's still his right. Yet, 
you or I would not even exist to be able to get mad were it not for God's creative power and initiative. You can ask this question, did he create the best of all possible worlds? As the 17th century philosopher Leibniz argued, he said this is the best of all possible worlds, and he argues from there. I think he did. But he did not have to, and I'm not sure that any of us would have any clue as what the best possible world would even look like. I don't know what a best possible world would look like. I guarantee my world would be different. I don't think it'd be so great when all is said and done, because I don't know all the implications and innuendos of everything. We're not that smart. We're not that smart. We're not God. And whenever we begin to question God, we're, we're basically saying, God, I'm smarter than you. And then we're, we're on touchy territory. But also we notice that God created a world in which he could demonstrate all of his attributes. As we look at the Genesis account and at his creation, we can get some ideas about why he created the world the way that it is. Through his creation, we learn that he's powerful, that he's imaginative, that he's creative, that he's intelligent beyond anything we could ever imagine, that he's good and that he's holy. This is the conclusion of Aristotle, who by logic alone deducted these attributes and many others just by logic and observation of creation. Aristotle observed that all things have a potential for motion. Some things undergo motion by their own volition. They act by their own will. Other things undergo motion or movement by some outside agency. For example, a cat may undergo motion by its own volition when it struts around in your living room, going its own places that you have no control over. You can't, can't control a cat very well. However, you can also initiate motion for the cat by putting in a catapult. Catapult, get it? Catapult? Never mind. <coughs> okay, bad joke. Let's go on. To make the point... Aristotle used the example of a stone that's moved by agency of stick, or we might use the idea of a baseball, a ball, and a bat, uh, but we'll use his, his analogy, the stone and the stick. The stick is moved by the agency of the hand. The hand is moved by the agency of the man, and it goes on and on and on, and we see there appears to be an endless regress. A is moved by B, B is moved by C, C is moved by D, and so on and so on. The question is, how far back does one go? And to answer this, Aristotle proposes what is known as the unmoved mover. This entity would be the end of this line, so to speak. The unmoved mover would have initiated movement within the universe, and more importantly, the unmoved mover would not have been set in motion by another thing. There's a, something original which it all has to start with, and he says the logical conclusion. There had to be something to start the ball rolling. He says this in his book, The Physics. Since motion must be everlasting and must never fail, there must be some everlasting first mover, one or more than one. Now remember, he had no access to Christianity or, or Judaism or the Bible in any sense. This is simply by pure logic that he drew these conclusions. If we stick with that line of reasoning, then we must conclude that the unmoved mover is also eternal, existing for all time. This is important when we remember that Aristotle believed an entity to be most fulfilled and loved when it's actualizing its potential. That's a whole other theme that you can develop I won't get into. This would seem to imply that the unmoved mover is constituted by eternal love, wisdom, and fulfillment. Does that sound familiar? That starting point? It indeed began to sound a lot like the explanation of the existence of God. And sure enough, Aristotle does conclude and makes reference to a God, single God, monotheistic God, as the unmoved mover. The world that we live in 
and that God created was intended by God to reveal all of his attributes. He's the one that set it all in motion, and he wanted a world that he could show all of his attributes, all of his character. He did not intend to demonstrate only his love and his goodness and his mercy. He could have created a world that's all he showed, but it would only reveal certain parts of his nature, certain parts of his attributes. He also intended, though, to show his holiness, his justice, which requires discipline and judgment. And sometime, we would have sooner avoid those things. We want the good side of God's character. We don't want the other side of God's character. But it's necessary if he has demonstrated all of his attributes to have those things in place. But we also learn that God created a world that is very good for our benefit. That's repeated over and over throughout Genesis. Fortunately for us, God is good, and he wants us to enjoy him and his creation. And we learn in this passage he created a world perfectly suited for us. He gave us food. He gave us comfort. He gave us companionship. He gave us water. Our earth is perfectly suited for the distance of the sun. You have Jupiter to take away the asteroids, to draw asteroids to themselves. The perfect speed and cycles that give us gravity and everything else. This perfect world and the food that we get, for instance, is not stale and tasteless food. It's enjoyable and filling. And I know that by experience. He created beauty. He created us with a purpose. He created us to enjoy him and the pleasure of his presence. Now, a question is often asked by critics that pertains to this topic is, if God is all-powerful, can do anything, could he create a rock so big you could not fit it? The reason it pertains to it, because we can say, could God have created another world that where everything was good? Maybe he could. But if we say yes, that God created a rock so big he could not lift it, If we say yes, then we concede there's something God can't do because God would then create a rock which he couldn't lift. The thing God couldn't do would be to lift the rock. On the other hand, if we say no, then we concede that there's something God cannot do, namely create a rock which he can't lift. Either way, your answer will seem to affirm that God is not omnipotent. But the argument misunderstands what the definition of omnipotence is. When, when we Christians say God can do anything, we don't mean literally anything. When we say that God can do the impossible, we don't mean to do things that are logically impossible. By possible, we mean things like creating out of nothing, keeping people of fire from burning, as in Daniel, having a guy walk on water, as in Peter and Jesus, or make a 90-year-old woman get pregnant and have birth to a healthy son, as in Sarah of Abraham's wife. And the question is akin to asking, can God's infinite power overwhelm his infinite power? Or it's like asking, can God beat himself in a fist fight? Or can God think up a mathematical equation too difficult for him to solve? It's sheer nonsense. And C.S. Lewis once said, nonsense is still nonsense even when we speak about God. You're basically asking if a being of unlimited power can produce something to limit him. But his unlimited power, by definition, rules out that possibility. An unlimited being cannot create limits for himself. The definition of omnipotence does not mean being able to do the logically impossible, to do something logically contradictory. God cannot create square circles. He cannot create married bachelors or one-ended sticks. God can do anything that's logically possible that's not logically contradictory. God can create things out of nothing. God can make axe heads float in water, as in Ezekiel. He can make animals speak in a human tongue, as in Baal in the Old Testament. He can cause a virgin to be pregnant. He can't make something exist and not exist at the same time. He can't cause animals to speak in a human tongue and be silent at the same time. He can't make a woman both pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God can do the logically impossible. 
That is not the definition of omnipotence. So if we ask, can God do anything? The answer is yes, so long as it's logically possible in accord, and this is more importantly so, with his perfect nature. God will not go against his nature. So things like love and holiness and omniscience, they're not open to change. They're not fluctuating at all times because they're based on the nature of God. There's a second response to our question. Why did God put the forbidden fruit in the tree? And that is God created us in his image. Now we looked at that last week, so I won't expand on that this week because it's so fresh in your mind right now. You can just think through the whole outline from last week, right? Anybody want to repeat the outline? Okay, never mind. Look what it says. Because here, in this perfect world, this perfect environment that God made for them, we find the test. It goes like this. You know the story. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? As we observe, that's not what he said. The woman corrects him and says, no, we may not eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not, and she kind of adds to it, touch it. Where did he say that? Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the servant said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, I preached on this passage on more than one occasion, especially in regard to the marriage series that I did some time ago. But the whole point is, this is the test. But here's the point we need to observe as she's facing and encountering this question. First of all, God gave us free will to make choices. Last week we learned that God created us in his image. Now there's a lot we know about God just by looking at ourselves. Part of being made in his image is that we have the capacity and freedom to make choices about all kinds of things. We're free agents, free moral agents that way. Things like what we'll eat, what we'll wear, what we'll say, how to say, what direction we'll have in life, what kind of work we want to do. And in this passage, we find Satan in the form of a servant in the Garden of Eden. And we just saw that God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the only tree of the many they could not eat from. Just think about it. You can eat of any tree in the garden. Anyone. There's one forbidden you. It's not unrealistic. They were given the choice of obeying the command or not. The command was not unreasonable. God had already proven himself caring and loving and that he had their best interests in mind. He already created a perfect world filled with wonder and purpose and pleasure. There should have been no reason to question his goodness that he's holding something back from you or their, his desire for their best. But because we bear God's image, we do have free will. And we can reason and rationalize a volition to decide. But we learn that we're given the capacity to love him or reject him. Remember, God created a world in which he could show off his attributes that are based on his eternal, unchanging nature. Love is one of those attributes. The nature of love that's emotional, volitional, intellectual, but love cannot be programmed. God did not create controllable robots where he could just come and tweak the the programming a little bit, the software. He created image bearers who can choose to love and obey him or choose to reject him and disobey him. You're given the choice. You're given the freedom. I'm not, he says, I'm not going to program this into you because it's not love if I do. It's against the nature of what love is based on who I am. 
And that's part of what it means to bear his image. The reason he put the tree in the garden is that it's a way to test our love. And I want to develop that a little bit later, except to say that's an important point. There are consequences if we disobey him. God's moral law not only reveals his holy and unchanging nature, it reveals how God's image can be revealed through us. And when we obey his moral law, we truly reflect his image. That is exactly what Jesus did. And by fellowshipping with him and obeying him, we fulfill our purpose. By disobeying him, we fail to fulfill our purpose, and we may find the temporary pleasure fulfilling, but ultimately, it's going to let us down. And what we think to be good at the time may, in fact, lead to great pain and disappointment for now and eternity. The great lie that deceived Eve is the same lie that deceives us, and that is, I can be like God. I can make my own choices independent of God, inconsistent with God's desire, and I will have a better life if I go my own way. But it doesn't work that way. We believe we can decide independently of God what is best for us, and when we act in defiance of him, there's a consequence when that happens. Henry Blackaby tells a rather tragic story that illustrates this last point. He says, the first funeral I ever concluded, and I'm reading from his account there, the first funeral I ever con- conducted was for a beautiful three-year-old. She was the first child born to a couple in our church and the first grandchild in our extended family. Unfortunately, she was spoiled. And while visiting the girl's home one day, I observed that she loved to ignore her parents' instructions. And when they told her to come, she went. When they told her to sit down, she stood up. And when her parents laughed, finding this behavior cute. And one day, their front gate was inadvertently left open. And the parents saw their child escaping out the front yard and hitting toward the road. To their horror, a car was racing down the street as she ran between two parked cars. They both screamed at her to stop and turn back. And she paused for just a second and looked back at her parents and then gleefully laughed as she turned and ran directly into the path of the oncoming car. The parents rushed their little girl to the hospital, but she died from the injuries. And as a young pastor, Blackaby says, this was a profound lesson for me. I realize I must teach God's people not only to recognize his voice, but also to immediately obey his voice when they hear it. It is life. Like the loving parents who saw their daughter die because she refused to obey them, so it is for us with God. To love and obey God is for our good. He doesn't give us instructions and and commands because he disapproves of us. And if we choose to defy him, it's not without consequences. God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to test and see if we trust him or will we pursue our own course. Being in his image opens both options. We can choose one way or the other. But he wants to see, will you love me? Will you trust me? There's a third response to our question, why did God put the forbidden tree in the garden? It's this, without the tree, we have no way to test our love for him. Every good story has conflict and hardship. Now, can you imagine reading a book that has no conflict? You have these happy little people on the beach, happy all along and everything. The whole story is about how happy they were and how everything was so good, how everything was so wonderful, and they had a good meal, and they swam in the ocean. Everything was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I would take that book about th- three pages in, and I'd put it aside. You're kind of losing me here. In fact, Lemony Stickett, the movie, if you've ever seen it, they have they started off with these, that very theme and said, you know, this is not the story you want to see. 
In fact, I have a book in my library that gives a three-point outline that virtually every writer uses when they write a t- for a TV script. In fact, the author himself was a writer for some TV shows. And the outline that he presents goes like this. He says, if you want to write a story for a TV show, you do this. Introduce your hero. He needs to be someone your audience supports and identifies with. If you make him too bad or incompetent, it diminishes the story. You have to be able to have some affection and affinity to this, guy, this hero. Number two, get your hero up a tree and throw rocks at him. In other words, place him in tough situations with conflict and tough choices. It doesn't hurt to have a time limit for which you would need to bring up resolution. That's why you always see in these movies where a bomb's ready to blow off or something to happen. You always just see the time and the going down and down and down and you, you, the tense, they've got to do something about it. And of course, just, you know, so it's five seconds, three seconds, two seconds, click, ah, it stops. And everybody's saved and the world is saved. But you've got to have tension by having a time element. And then the final thing, get your hero out of the tree. Can't leave him up there. God is the hero of our story. Your life is a story that's being written and added to every day. Sometimes in your story, you find yourself in a tree with rocks being thrown at you. Your story is filled with failure, disappointment, enemies throwing rocks, hardship, and times of near hopelessness. But in your story, God is always present, always directing it so that it ultimately works out for the good of those who love him according to Romans chapter 8, 28. Even in the worst of times, God's present, and he calls on us to love him and to trust him. In your story, though, that God is the one who will always be faithful, even when we cannot see him at the time, and even when we are not faithful, he will always be. God welcomes those who humbly return to him. There's a very well-known story in the Bible that almost everybody knows. As soon as I say the name prodigal son, everybody knows the story. It's very well-known. It's a parable that was given by Jesus Christ where he tells the story of a young rebellious man who was tired of living under his father's expectations and requirements. And so he shamelessly asked his early for his inheritance, which was a shameful thing at the time. And upon receiving it, he squanders it and realizes what he has done and desperately and humbly returns to his father who welcomes him home. But what if God were a different kind of God than he is? It could be another story with a very different outcome. In fact, there's an ancient Asian legend that tells the story that is in a shame culture, different than what we are used to, but of a man who had a wild, impetuous son. Curtis Lanes, in his book, The Man with Dirty Hands, he says this, I'm reading, The boy became involved with the ruffians of the village who persuaded him to join them in a robbery of his father's treasury house. And after the robbery was over, his friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt of the crime alone. And the young man was desperate. He was deserted by his friends and he had betrayed the trust of his father. But his greatest crime was that he had brought public dishonor to the family name. And in a culture where ancestors are worshipped and family integrity is sacred, trust, this was the worst thing of all. Broken and deeply repentant, he went to his father and begged forgiveness, and graciously it was granted. And the father called all the members of the family together to celebrate the reconciliation and return to his son. And when all had enjoyed the banquet to their fullest, the father stood and lifted his cup of rice wine for a toast. But as the son drank deeply the contents of the cup, he grabbed his throat and fell lifeless to the table. The son had been poisoned. And the father, with ceremonial dignity, nodded to the guest. Each in turn graciously and politely bowed to the father as they silently left the banquet hall. All was put right now. The son had paid the price of his pardon with poison. 
His honor had been restored. The family integrity and honor were reestablished. The unfortunate incident was closed. In the parable of the prodigal son, another father is deeply shamed by his son's wild and reckless behavior. But when that son comes back and begs for forgiveness, what a different reaction that he gets. And that's the story of each of us. We're all that prodigal son. We're all that one that has rebelled against God and we return humbly and realizing that our our dependence on him. The Christian God is a God of love who welcomes us back. He welcomes back his wayward children when they humbly admit their sin and appeal to his grace. That's our story. This morning, we looked at the question, why did God put the forbidden tree in the garden and we learned that it's because we're not robots. We were created in the image of God. We're freely able to love and serve him because of it. And the way that God chose to test our love and to trust him was to forbid one simple, realistic command. Are you going to trust me? Do you believe I have your best interest in mind? And the answer should be yes, but he's going to put it to the test. And one tree was placed to see what we would do. Are we going to love him out of our own volition? You know, God could have made robots, but then again, we would not bear his image in the way that he desired He wanted people who would enjoy him and he would enjoy a fellowship with not as robots but as persons who by our own volition created his image say, God, I love you, I trust you, and I'm going to obey you. Three things I want you to take away from this. Remember, you're not a robot. You have a choice to love God and live a life with fellowship with him or you can choose to go your own way. But there are consequences for both. You can't determine the consequences on the other side consequences for the first option is enjoying God and eternity in his presence the other is eternal death separation from God second thing to to take away is this God loves you so much that he made a way for you to be restored no matter what you have done to him he went so far as to send his son Jesus to die on the cross on your behalf he took the poison for you so to speak And he longs for you to come into his presence. And in that relationship, we are free from condemnation. We're free from doubt. We're free to enjoy him, to serve him, to love him. It's a choice each one of us must make. What's yours? What's your choice? You can go whatever route you want. God's not going to coerce you one way or the other. But he asks you, trust me, love me. And I've made it available to come into my presence. Let me close with a story. I think I've used it before, so if you've heard it, just roll your eyes and say, ah, I've heard that old story. But it's an important one. I think it brings us together quite well. It's taken off of a story by C.S. Lewis about a child learning to walk. So I'm going to use a very personal illustration of this. I've talked about it before, so you'll know the illustration if you've been here. Now, when my son was a baby, he learned to walk quite early. He was a very small baby. This is the one that's in California still. When he was a baby, he um, went from crawling to standing almost immediately. He didn't crawl very long. He went to standing and and, uh, learned to walk quite young, nine months old. And he would crawl over the couch, and he would get up on the couch. He would move and hold on the couch, and he would start working his way back and forth, always with two hands and and everything. And uh, he felt quite proud of himself as as he was doing that. Well, eventually he got real brave, and he would do it with one hand. One hand on the couch, wobbly a little bit and got more balance over time, but he would do it with one hand and we would, we'd just watch him, see him developing and all that kind of stuff. Well, eventually though, 
he, you could see the gears working in his brain where Grandma's chair was six steps away. And you could see him wanting to walk, but he didn't. So he got down on his knees, crawled over, and got and sat in Grandma's lap. Well, one day he decided he wanted to get to my niece who was sitting in that same chair at another time. And she was sitting in the chair, and he decides that instead of crawling, he would walk. And so he took one step, then two steps, and three steps, and before he could get to the fourth step, he fell flat on his rear. Now, Vaughn and I did what every parent would do when they see that happen. Stupid baby! What's wrong with you? You can't even take four steps. Do you think that's what we did? No, thank you, thank you. I, I th somebody here at least has some trust in me here. <laughs> what did we do? Grandma! Call her on the phone. He took his first steps. It was only three steps, and he's well padded on the bottom there, so the fall wasn't going to hurt him. It was, there was no trouble there. He took his first steps, and we rejoiced, and we celebrated because we know he's going to learn to walk. Is God any different? Is God any different? Does God sit and look at you and he waits for you to fall flat on your rear and go, stupid baby, what's wrong with you? What does he do? Get up, move forward. I love you and I want you to love me. I want you to learn to walk with me. And it's by your own volition and by your own will that we can walk together, that we can enjoy each other. And so in our spiritual journey and walking with God, we're going to fall flat on our rear end in the process. But let's get up. Because God rejoices every time you take that step.